Today I want to explore a very powerful and wonderful teaching or principle that is clearly one of my favorites. And this is a teaching that we could identify as bringing together deep commitment to acting and practicing with letting go in some way, some deep way, of the results. Sometimes I talk about this as commitment to action, committed action, non-attachment to outcome. And this is a very uh, powerful principle for our individual formal practice, in a way, for our being with others. And it's also very clearly a crucial principle for action in the world, for social service, for social action, and I think uh, particularly relevant at our times, in our times. You know, it's like if many of us come here once a week, each week there are new depredations. <laughs> there are new difficult things happening, right? You know, more, you know, I think there have always been difficult things happening, but it seems a little more intense than previously, for at least for many of us. And so this can be a very um, shining guide for all elements of uh, our practice. And it particularly points to a challenge for probably most or all of us in that we get attached, so to speak, to results. That occur for anyone here? Okay. And there's a very... Um, ordinary way to talk about this. And in some ways, the way I expressed it, it sounds paradoxical. If you try to think it out, it is not always going to work that well to think it out, how these go together. Uh, but there's a very ordinary English way to talk about this, which is to do your best and let the chips fall where they may. Or do your best and let things be as they are. Or do your best and let go of what happens, knowing that you've done your best. So I think that's a very... Uh, ordinary way of understanding this. Um, I first really had insight into this principle on an experiential level. I had read about it in different texts. It's really a core principle in many spiritual traditions, East and West. And I had read about this some, but I, I was having um, a difficult experience. This was in some of my first experiences of teaching. Uh, I was, as some of you know, in, in an earlier incarnation, I was a teacher um, at the University of Kentucky. I was in the uh, philosophy department there. And I was uh, teaching, as a young teacher, uh, an evening ethics class, Introduction to Ethics. And this is where I learned about this principle more deeply. A little bit of background. I think some years before I came, when there were negotiations about what the liberal arts requirements should be for the University of Kentucky, somehow there was an agreement made, probably with very, very skillful action by the philosophy department, for every undergraduate to have as a uh, requirement to take either a mathematics course or a philosophy course. <laughs> this, this agreement made years before I came was probably the reason that there was actually room to hire me. It led to the philosophy department becoming huge <laughs> because there was such a need to teach these um, introductory undergraduate courses. And I was hired, and they had me teach quite a few of them. Um, the ethics class was one of, I think there were three introductory courses, and ethics was one of them. And so a lot of people were taking them. You know, and one of my challenges was that um, 
they were meeting a requirement and they didn't really want to be there, right? Um, and the evening was particularly difficult, this particular uh, evening class, because it was in the fall and I had a very large percentage of the class were football players. <laughs> they were on the varsity football team. And football is pretty big there. This is the, um, the uh, Southeastern Conference, which includes, you know, all these, like Alabama and all these powerhouses. Anyway, some of you are probably into sports and some of you are not. But anyway, uh, football, um, and Kentucky wasn't that good, but that, that was beside the point. But anyway, large percentage of football players in the fall, they come to my class at 7.30 in the evening. What have they been doing all day? Imagine their day. They wake up, maybe they take a class or two, and then, I don't know when they start, but it's football practice for hours and hours. I don't know how many hours they practice, but it's a lot. You know, it's at least four or five, six hours, and they probably go through the afternoon. Then after they finish their practice, they go and have probably a really big dinner. And then they come to my class. <laughs> primed for deep inquiry. <laughs> uh, primed for deep inquiry that would probably best ha be happening through dreams. So what, they, what do they most want to do? They want to sleep. And their, their solution, if they couldn't sleep, if they had to go to the class, was they would use the class as a vehicle for just telling jokes and goofing off the whole time. I was a young, earnest teacher. They were a large percentage of the class, and of course they were able to enlist other members of the class in their activities. So there I was. I had not at that point internalized the principle of committed action, non-attachment to outcome. <laughs> it was not going as I wished it to go. And I was very frustrated. You know, I was, you know, probably at that point I had also not internalized fully the principles of becoming non-judgmental. <laughs> and so I was frustrated. And it was, just went on for a while. At a certain point, I remembered something I had read about in several texts. I particularly remembered having read uh, from the uh, Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu core text, where there's a principle that's uh, articulated very fully in the Gita called the principle of action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. Very fundamental principle. It was a principle that was central for Gandhi. And I'll, I'll come to that in a while. And so here it was the idea that you act fully Essentially, they didn't use that language, but you let it be what it is. For here, this is from the Gita, from the text. This is explaining um, action without attachment to the fruits of one's action. Steadfast in the way, without attachment, do your work, victorious one. The same in success and misfortune. This evenness, this is discipline. And in a, from Buddhist framework, we hear this, it sounds actually very close to equanimity, right? You act, but there can be an inner balance. And I'll, I'll come back to that. And so I remembered that. I also had remembered reading about this in uh, the Chinese tradition, uh, Chuang Tzu, who talks about non-action, you know, which is a kind of action, but it's, it's an action coming out of inner stillness. It's an ideal in the Taoist uh, tradition. Uh, this is what he said, the non-action of the wise person is not inaction. It is not studied. It is not shaken by anything. This again sounds like equanimity, right? And so I remembered some of these teachings. I say, and I said to myself, I do not know what's happening here. I do not know if I will be at all successful. You know, it feels like it's just a, a, you know, a mess and a waste, and so forth. And <clears throat> on the other hand, I have to keep teaching it if I want my salary and want to, you know, keep teaching there. 
have a job, in other words. And so I said, I'll continue, but I'm going to try to work with this principle. I'm going to do my best, and I'm just going to do my best and not, basically not think much about it afterwards, right? You know, I'm going to think about, in a sense, what do I think went well, try to be skillful, but I'm not going to get down on myself or get, you know, reactive as much as I can. I'm just going to let it be. And I did that for the rest of the semester, and it felt uh, there was a lot more inner ease, of course. You know, I was really, oh, you know, I wasn't down on myself. Again, I didn't have a sense, clear sense, of whether it was really, quote-unquote, working. But there was a lot more ease. And then I was quite surprised at the um, end of the semester. Uh, several of the football players came up to me and they told me, this is the best class I've ever taken. <laughs> And it was after grades had been turned in, so I don't think they were saying that with an ulterior motive, right? There was no reason that they would say that in order to get something, right? They, they certainly weren't going to take any more philosophy classes. <laughs> and they, but they told me that, that this was the best class I've taken, right? And so I thought, gosh, I let go of the results, and even some of the results seemed to have been positive, right? So... Uh, that's where I really started exploring that principle. And since then, it's been a very crucial principle. So what I want to do is say a little bit more about how it gets expressed in different traditions, then talk about how we practice it, how we actually work with it in a more precise way. And I want to partly do that in terms of looking at it in terms of our formal meditation practice, because I think it is a very relevant guide there. And then I'll, I'll end by talking about what the principle looks like when it reaches a certain level of maturity. In other words, um, particularly looking at some people who have embraced something like that principle and what they, how they talk about it and also some, some uh, stories from my own experience. So again, we can find something like this principle in Hindu tradition, in the Gita particularly, in the teachings of Chuangsu. We find a teaching that's very close to this in the teachings of the Buddha, uh, which is the teaching of the eight worldly winds. Again, we could take a whole uh, morning just on that principle, on that teaching. The eight worldly winds, it's the, uh, the eight lokadama. The winds isn't a literal translation, it really is sort of the the eight worldly dhammas, or um, really principles, we might say. But the, uh, the teaching is about looking out for where you get hooked by eight different factors. There are really four sets of two. They are pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, and praise and blame. And they say, really, look out for these. And particularly, this is really pointing to one of the basic ways we practice, because these are where we get essentially attached to outcome. Right? We want the pleasant. We don't want the painful. We want the gain. We don't want the loss. We want the fame or the good image. We don't want the negative words about ourselves. We want praise. We don't want blame. And one way of practicing with this principle is to really study where we get knocked off center by any of these. It's a really uh, actually points to a very, very clear practice. If you wanted to work with this principle, for example, in the next week, you could take that teaching as a very down-to-earth way to, to work with it. Look for, oh, when am I knocked around by pleasure or pain, by uh, gain or loss, by fame or disrepute, by praise or, or blame. And they, those um, can organize our experience to a high degree. You know, I, you know, I can remember many times when I found myself just, you know, um, particularly being very uh, susceptible to criticism. I think a lot of us have that, right? And 
You know, one time it really got clear to me was when I was uh, co-organizing a Buddhist Peace Fellowship Summer Institute with about 100 people, and we did midway through. We thought it was going pretty well. We did like a written evaluation. We got you know, just a few comments from each person there, and almost all of it was really positive. And there were a few negative comments or grumbling or complaining comments, and we, the organizers, went right into... We focused almost entirely on the negative comments, and I said, whoa... That's interesting, you know, and we all took it seriously, and we really basically lost perspective. Has that ever happened to you? <laughs> right? And um, so it's something to study, right? I mean, it's linked with what the psychologists call a negativity bias. Do you know that term? Have you heard that? That, we, that our minds partly just want to seek out the negative, and we don't seek out the positive so much. That's why one of the basic Buddhist practices that's very helpful is tuning into joy, tuning into where there can be appreciation. Very important in interpersonal settings to, to tune in that way. So that's the teaching that gets expressed in the Buddhist tradition. Some of you know the teaching, uh, probably most of us do, of the Hebrew Bible, the book of Job, right? The story of Job. Job is a stalwart, faithful person, religious person, and essentially he gets tested, right? He's, uh, the story is that can one's faith and one's uh, core principles hold up when things don't go so well? And they went very, very poorly for Job, if you may, may remember the story that, um, you know, that uh, his uh, children died. He lost his property. He lost his health. He lost his reputation. Prior to that, it was said, there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, one who fears God and shuns evil. And as it were, bad things happened. And it was a question, would he, would he stay upright? You know, what were, was his faith and his, were his principles dependent on things, quote-unquote, going well? Right? So we have that teaching there. We have that teaching in multiple traditions. We get a sense of it now. And again, each of those uh, traditions point to different things. Um, like I mentioned, it was very crucial for Gandhi. And a lot, of, a lot of spiritually grounded social activists have that principle very, very much at the center. This is from Gandhi. He was, he was using the uh, teaching from the Gita. He said this, the unmistakable teaching of the Gita is that one who gives up action fails. So you have to keep acting. That's the one side of it. You know, that you can fail by not staying with your committed action, right? In whatever area. So one who gives up action fails. One who gives up only the reward, that's his language of saying non-attachment to the fruit. One who gives up only the reward rises, he says. But renunciation of the fruit in no way means indifference to the result. So it's getting a little subtle here, right? <laughs> right? I mean, he, he, you know, he was committed to the independence of India, right? But he was still working with this principle. You know, one way to talk about it is it means not being quite so attached to this particular outcome, the outcome of this meeting or this action, right? It's maybe having the big picture. So he says... Renunciation of fruit in no way means indifference to the result. One who is without desire for the result, yet wholly engrossed in the due fulfillment of the task, is said to have renounced the fruits of the action. So that's, that's what he's suggesting. One who is ever brooding over results often loses nerve in the performance of duty. One becomes impatient and then gives vent to anger and begins to do unworthy things. One jumps from action to action never remaining faithful to any of them. When there is no desire for fruit, there is no temptation for untruth or violence. Another, you know, another teaching that's close to this is saying, we don't let the end justify the means. That's another teaching very close to this, isn't it? You know, let your means be faithful to your ends. And he's saying that when you get attached to the outcome, you're very susceptible 
to letting the end justify bad means. He says, when there is no desire for fruit, there is no temptation for untruth or violence. Take any instance of untruth or violence and it will be found that at its back was the desire to attain the cherished end, sort of the attachment to that, to that end and the loss of the principle. So very interesting is that in many ways our meditation practice also very much follows this principle that we are really invited to stay with the practice. It's, it's going, quote-unquote, well. It's not going well, quote-unquote. We stay with it. There's a certain balance, equanimity, dedication, determination, no matter what happens. And so we're invited to stay with the practice. Of course, this, this requires a certain amount of experience and faith. It's hard at the beginning, right, to have that. But after a while, we may have the sense that I just want to stay with it. I'm committed to being mindful, and it doesn't have to, quote-unquote, go as I wish. Right? And so we can know this. We can, you know, I think I learned this more clearly doing retreats, where you really just, you know, there are, you get to see in a short amount of time ups and downs, and the idea is really to just stay with it, stay being present, stay being mindful, no matter what happens. You have a so-called good sitting, you have a bad sitting, just stay with it. You know, just to, that's not easy, right? Because we are often dependent on results. And it's a very common guidance that I give to people with whom I'm working, that just to stay, stay with the practice, particularly you know, when, time, when, the, when the mind gets more agitated, you know, it's very common for us to have a, you know, say, I'm going to have a 20-minute sitting, and then the mind's really restless for the first five minutes, and you say, uh, this isn't going anywhere. I'm going to stop. Anyone ever done that? Yeah, it's very common. And so we need that wisdom just to stay with it. And, you know, partly we can know that it um, can be unsteady the first five minutes, and five minutes later, very different, Right? This is, when we, uh, this is when impermanence is our friend, <laughs> right? Impermanence is our friend when, we, when we're having something difficult. And often it's not our friend when we're having something good and we remember impermanence. Um, so, so we can see this in our meditation practice. And really the, the invocation is really to stay with being mindful you're having difficult emotions, difficult experiences, stay with it. Again, this is equanimity. This is the cultivation of equanimity and balance. And at a certain point, we have this sense that no matter what happens, I'm dedicated to awareness, I'm dedicated to wisdom, I'm dedicated to compassion. And I have a sense that awareness can be there and be of use even when things are, are difficult or not going as I wish. <clears throat> there was one experience I remember very much um, on retreat <clears throat> where I wasn't particularly thinking of this principle, but it really manifested. You know, I, was, I remember doing a longer retreat. <clears throat> it may, may have been a month or six weeks. And, I was on, and I, there was something where I just loved being on retreat. And it was almost like it didn't matter what was happening because this was the place I wanted to be. I wanted to be just being present and it didn't really matter. I remember one morning, I woke up. I hadn't slept well. I was really irritable. Some other negative things were happening. And I remember just feeling so content. <laughs> I said, whoa, this is interesting. You know, there it was, you know, just the, you know, all the externals weren't working. Body didn't feel good. Mind didn't feel good. Emotions didn't feel good. And just a deep contentment <laughs> because there was something bigger, right? There was something bigger than those particular outcomes, those particular externals. That's what the principle is pointing to, something bigger that holds us, right? Something bigger that can hold us with the ups and downs of life. Right? Not easy, right? But the principle can help us with that because we can, it can help to take us through, just like my experience with the football players. It took me, it gave me balance at a times when I was pretty unbalanced, right? 
and was just complaining and probably making judgmental thoughts about football players and so forth, right? And it helped me through that process. And so we can, we can see how in our meditation practice it helps us to stay with the discipline of practice, even when the mind isn't so clear. One of my Tibetan teachers used to say, it's very important just to keep on being there. And he said, of a meditation, 0% quality, very good. (laughs) Meaning, you got that one? Meaning, don't worry about the quality, just as they say in Jewish tradition, put your tush on the kush. You know, and so um, that's that's what it's pointing to. That's what he was meaning by that, I think. So, so part of you know part of the practice would be keep in my language, keep with the committed action. In this case, the meditation, and then the non-attachment outcome. And it actually is a principle that can, in the long run, help tremendously with deepening. Because if we are actually dependent in our meditation on things going well all the time, or how we think it should be, there's going to come a point where it doesn't, right? And it might come pretty, pretty soon. But it can, there will come a point where it's not quite going when you want to, or how you want, how you want it to be going. And at that point, is the balance there? Is the understanding there? Is the equanimity there? Is the persistence there? You know? And we need to have it be there. Right? Because there, there are times when things in our practice, in our lives, in everything may not be going as we want. Can we, can we stay with it? Can we keep having the, the, what I'm calling the committed action? And then can we look to where we have that sense of getting caught up by the results? And again, that teaching of the eight worldly winds is a good pointer to the different ways that we do get caught. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame, right? Those are the things that are going to catch us up. So we want to look at that. We want to look at where we get caught. Again, we're going to, we're going to have issues on both sides. We, we don't have sufficient steadiness of action, Again, whether it's meditation or acting in some other context, on the one hand, and then we don't have sufficient non-attachment to outcome on the other. Those are the places where we're going to get caught up. And again, the <clears throat> non-attachment outcome can coexist with very clear planning, very determined efforts to have things go a certain way, but there's a way that we just let go at a certain point, right? You know, I can have a meeting and I can have a plan to have the meeting go as well as possible. It's a question when it doesn't go so well, when I have someone at the meeting who is not acting according to my plan, do I get upset? Do I get attached to the outcome? Can I have something bigger while still having the goal? So you see, it's, there, there are elements of paradox here, aren't there? Right? It's, it's not like, it's not, if you try to think it out, it can be a little bit confusing. So there's, there, there are elements of, of paradox. So, last part, I want to talk about a few qualities of this way of acting, and then we'll open things up to discussion. So, what, what does this principle look like when it's at a pretty uh, good level of maturity? And there are a few different qualities. I think one of them is that we're actually more in the moment and really appreciating the process. I think there's more attention to process and less getting fixated on outcome. And this is uh, often not highly developed in, I think, in the culture in this country. You know, there's, there's so much uh, goal orientation, right? We do this to get here, to get here, to get here, you know, whatever. I, you know, I have my Children go to a good school so they can get into a good college, so they can get a good job, so they can have good work, so they can uh, have enough money to retire, and all of a sudden we're at the end of the life. And we may not have actually acted and lived according to our dreams, according to what's deeper, right? There can be that continual goal orientation that 
lets us miss the, the process. Um, and um, so it can be very important. And some, I mean, you think of examples like this and of really think of the times that you've really appreciated the process, even when it may not have gone as you wished, right? You know, I mean, one of the examples I think of um, is sports. You know, that in sports often um, athletes can have a, have a sense of this principle. It is there sometimes in sports where people more or less say, you know, I left it all on the court. You know, do you know that phrase? Again, probably there are more sports fans than there might have been 10 years ago in a meditation group at this time because of the success of the local team, right? And I've sometimes mentioned, I've, I've had dreams of playing basketball with Stephen Curry. <laughs> okay, and so, may, um, but are people going into the game tonight with the principle of non-attachment to outcome? <laughs> so. <laughs> no, but, but seriously, you have, I think you have, with athletes at a high level, they really have that sense, I'm just going to do my best, leave it all out there, and I will be content with the outcome, right? You find that in sports quite a lot. And maybe we find that in our own experience, where we can have a sense, it didn't go as I wished, but I really totally did my best, and I have some inner peace with that, right? I think we probably could think of examples, and maybe in the discussion, maybe we could share some of those. It'd be great to hear some some of your stories, because I'm sure that we all have sometimes uh, worked with this principle. There's also a sense that when you follow this principle, there in a, in a way is no, no such thing as really failing. You know? That in a sense, you, your outcome may not be what you wanted to, but there might not be really a, a deep sense of failure um, in the usual sense. You know? You know, and um, when I was working on that book called The Engaged Spiritual Life, I interviewed about 15 spiritually grounded social activists. One of my favorite uh, interviews, I actually think I did too, was with um, a man from Sri Lanka named um, Dr. A.T. Aryaratne. <clears throat> Sometimes called the Gandhi of Sri Lanka. You know, and he is... Um, you know, he's probably in his 80s now. And he'd been, he developed an organization called uh, Sarvodaya, which actually took its name partly from the Gandhian movement. And they developed uh, village-based groups uh, which brought together Buddhist practice with uh, village development in Sri Lanka. And they had about 15,000 groups throughout Sri Lanka. And it played a very large role I think larger than the government in the response to the tsunami in 2004, 2005. And I did several interviews with him. And this is, this is uh, from one of them. He, he, he was talking about there being no such thing as failure in a way. He said, when I do something with good intentions and I quote unquote fail, I do not take it as a failure. It may be a failure to others, but to me it is not a failure because that quote unquote failure may have taught me equanimity or detachment, or renunciation. In learning to accept failure, in a sense, I succeed. More, more paradox. Every action that I carry out carries an internal reason, which is always beneficial to me. So you act with good intentions and this principle. And if you take, another way to say this, if you take everything as learning, there's always can be learning, in a sense, always success. Does that make sense? It's like, uh, you know, it's something I've talked about at other times. Can we take everything as learning? You take that framework and everything can be positive even when you don't get what you want or you don't, want get, you don't get what you think should happen to happen. Another principle or another aspect of this principle that I think is there when, when there's maturity, is integrity. You know, another definition of integrity is holding to your core principles no matter what happens. Right? That's, you know, we, we can, we've, we've looked at integrity at times in, in, in these mornings, and integrity 
mean, can mean a certain kind of wholeness, consistency to principles, and so forth. And integrity is tested when things don't happen like we want, or difficult things happen, or quote-unquote bad things happen. Can you stay with that sense of integrity? You know, can you, can you um, keep with your principles no matter what happens? Do you remember um, some of these uh, questions that I brought, have brought in once or twice in the last months from, from uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, the African-American um, activist, writer, sociologist, who was one of the co-founders of the NAACP in 1909? And you, remember, I, you may remember at the end of his life, or near the end of his life, at the age of 89, he decided to write novels. And he, he decided to write three, and he completed them, starting at the age of 89. So that's another... <laughs> pretty interesting, you know. And um, in the novels, he asked these deep questions, which were really questions of integrity. He said... Um, he had four questions, which he said had been important for him in his life. He said, how does integrity face oppression... What does honesty do in the face of deception? What does decency do in the face of insult? And how does virtue meet brute force? These are questions that guide us to integrity and really guide us to follow this principle, even when things are quite hard. Another uh, aspect of this uh, principle is that we have more knowledge, maybe, uh, and we can see more clearly the causes and conditions related to a particular situation. And we can know that in some ways the causes and conditions lead to whether there is quote-unquote success in an external way. And we can sometimes do our best, but as it were, the causes and conditions weren't quite there that would have led to success, but it still was worthwhile, right? You know, this is from Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese teacher, talking about his efforts for nonviolent action in Vietnam, which clearly, in some sense, did not, quote-unquote, succeed, right? Because he had to go into exile, the North took over, and so forth. He said, this was after, the, uh, after he had been in exile, he said that the conditions for success in terms of political victory were not present for the Buddhist movement in Vietnam. Yet he did not regret the actions. He said, the success of a nonviolent struggle can be measured only in terms of the love and nonviolence attained, not whether a political victory was achieved. Do you hear that same principle in this very difficult situation? And I think also connected with that is another quality is that we have a long-term perspective. When we, have, uh, when we follow this principle... We're kind of in it for the long haul, right? This is, a, this is a principle about staying with very deep values for the long haul. And so we have a long-term perspective. Dr. Aryaratni for Sri Lanka, he said, we have difficult times now. We have a civil war. We need a 500-year plan to keep perspective. You know, it's not so common, you know. And so he said, okay, you know, we have to look at the causes and conditions, a lot of long-term causes and conditions, colonialism, you know, division between, you know, divide and conquer, division between the people in Sri Lanka. You know, we need to have a plan that has several stages. And he developed a 500-year plan, include, you know, reconciliation efforts, getting to know people from whom one had been disconnected for some time. So he had a 500-year plan. Right? Because he said the roots of the problem were 500 years. Right? So that's... What would it be like to have a 500-year plan? Right? For something like, like this, you know. And you have to balance that with the need for immediate action, like with climate issues and so forth. But um, there's something... <laughs> there's something that's uh, very important there. And I think there's also something you know, uh, about the um, sense of how we don't actually always know how things were going to occur. I didn't know that my football players were going to have these great experiences. I just tried to stay with the steadiness of action. 
You don't know what's going to happen. Meditation practice is very mysterious, right? You can have really difficult, especially if you do retreats, it's the same in daily practice, but you do retreats, the mysterious element gets really clear, like, you know, you have this really hard day or two, and then the next day, you know, the skies open up and you have, ah, oh. you know, that happens, right? It's mysterious, right? You don't know. We don't actually really know the depths of our psyche. And so we can't presume really to know all the details of thing, and the causes and conditions of things that are going to happen. Similarly, the same thing socially or maybe in terms of relationships. We don't know how some relationship will shift. We don't know how a difficult family relationship will, because of certain events, change for the better or the worse. You know, you look at history, <clears throat> who thought that apartheid would end in South Africa? Or that the Berlin Wall would fall down? You know, these are the mysterious things we don't know. And a lot of times we get frustrated because we're not getting what we think should happen. And we think we know what should happen. And it's mysterious. I think I'll just kind of end with um, a story, you know, maybe one story, and then maybe one other story, that um, this is really pretty interesting. There was um, a story, this is a story I heard from Daniel Ellsberg. Remember the person who leaked the Pentagon Papers? And he told the story. He lives in the Bay Area, so, and I think, I think he's actually speaking in a few weeks, or maybe in a week or two. Um, Maybe, you know, I don't know, in Berkeley, I think. And so he, he tells this story. He, you know, was working with the government. He was working with the RAND Corporation in Japan in the early 1960s. And he was able to um, have some vacation time. And he had read a book um, by Jack Kerouac called The Dharma Bums. Anyone read that book? Yeah, it's a great book. The, uh, it was, I think, published in 1957 or 58, and the uh, kind of the hero of the story was uh, a lightly, uh, lightly camouflaged Gary Snyder, who is the great poet, Zen practitioner who lives in the Sierra foothills. And I got to hear him just a few weeks ago in, when I was in New Mexico. He was, he was there. It was great. You know, and... Um, he, um, he was, um, so he was kind of the hero of this, and he had mentioned this temple in Kyoto. And uh, Daniel Ellsberg was on vacation, wanted to go to the temple in Kyoto. So he went to the temple, and he didn't know it, but Gary Snyder was at the temple. He was actually practicing in the Kyoto Zen at that time. So they met at the, the temple, they talked some, and they said, well, um, um, let's go talk further. And so um, Gary Snyder, being a proper Zen practitioner, suggested that they go to the nearby bar. <laughs> so they went to the bar, and they talked, and um, uh, Daniel Ellsberg didn't know much about Buddhist practice, and he, he was very kind of um, influenced by the visit with Gary Snyder, because Gary Snyder had, you know, very, you know, was a very uh, unusual person. He had, you know, like, deep Zen practice, but also very sophisticated politically. And he brought those together and had a, made apparently a profound, uh, had a profound um, effect on Daniel Ellsberg. And he said that later, this was like eight or nine years later, when he was deciding whether to release the Pentagon Papers, that encounter with Gary Snyder was very much on his mind and played a very significant role in his action. We don't know how things occur, especially if you can follow your own integrity. A lot of good things happen, and we don't even probably know but a small percentage of them. So that's something to remember. And then the last, the last thing I want to mention is that, of course, being with following this principle helps us with difficult times. Difficult times internally, difficult times... Um, on a larger scale. And there's a way in which uh, um, this was brought out. Some passages which really bring this out a lot that I like a lot are from the 
uh, writer and later president of Czechoslovakia, Václav Havel, who was in prison a lot under the communists. And this is what he said. He said that there is a kind of hope which is connected with one's deeper principles, which is not about getting this outcome or that outcome. It's really staying with one's integrity. And he said this was very important during his, the, the difficult times in Czechoslovakia, the years that he spent in prison. He said this, the kind of hope I often think about, especially in situations that are particularly hopeless, such as prison, I understand above all as a state of mind, not a state of the world. It is a dimension of the soul and not dependent on some particular observation of the world or estimate of the situation. It's not the same as joy that things are going well or willingness to invest in enterprises that are headed for success. It's not optimism. It's rather an ability to work for something because it is good regardless of how it turns out. He said that helped him in the difficult times. So I'll end with something from uh, <clears throat> the Indian uh, physicist and activist uh, Vandana Shiva. Anyone know her work? Some of you. Um, she, she sometimes comes around here. She said, she was asked a question. Every time I've heard you speak or met you, you've had so much energy, not only intellectual energy, but personal or spiritual energy. What keeps you so alive? <laughs> and this was her response. Well, it's always a mystery. <laughs> because you don't know why you get depleted or recharged, but this much I know. I do not allow myself to be overcome by hopelessness, no matter how tough the situation. I believe that if you just do your little bit without thinking of the bigness of what you stand against, if you turn to the enlargement of your own capacities, just that in itself creates new potential. I've learned from the Gita and other teachings of our culture to detach myself from the results of what I do. So you're hearing the principle again? Because these are not in my hands. The control is not in your control. Or the context is not in your control. But your commitment is yours to make, and you can make the deepest commitment with a total detachment about where it will take you. You want it to uh, lead to a better world. You shape your actions to take full responsibility for them, but then you have detachment. That combination of deep passion and deep detachment, that's her language for what I was pointing to, allows me to always take on the next challenge because I don't cripple myself. I don't tie myself in knots. I function like a free being. I think getting that freedom is a social duty because I think we owe it to each other not to burden uh, each other with prescription and demands. I think what we owe each other is a celebration of life and to replace fear and hopelessness with fearlessness and joy. Yay. So, the end. So. so that's a fairly amazing principle, isn't it? Difficult, right? Any questions, reflections, your own stories of when this worked for you? And let's, let's say our name as we start. Hi, I'm Susan. And uh, this is a personal action. It's not political action. But as you were speaking, I was thinking about I have a writing practice that I'm committed to. And I yeah. do it every morning. It's my journal. And I write and write for a certain amount of time. And sometimes a beautiful poem comes out of the writing. Yeah. And sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But if I didn't sit down to write every day, um, I w nothing would come out of it. Yeah, yeah. So I think that that's I think that's a good example of what you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, I think so. Right? That that you're committed to the time and sometimes it goes well and sometimes it doesn't. Right. Yeah. Right. And yeah. you have to be okay with that otherwise you get discouraged and you'd never do it. Yeah. Yeah, and then particularly hard times would be if it happens for a while in a row, you know, and one develops so-called writer's block, right? 
Right. Yeah, thank you. Please in the back. I don't really have a... Uh, uh, put, put this up to, right up to your mouth like an ice cream cone. I know, I just feel like it's going to be so loud. Um, so I've been coming for like uh, six months and, and just listening, and I have three small kids, three small yeah. boys, um, and I did the working with judgments, like cl- one-day class. And oh, yeah. All of these things so far, like when I look at my kids, these so many things are natural, innate in children, right? And then we lose them somewhere along the way, right? Um, But just an observation: this is the exact opposite, yeah, right? This is something that I think everyone needs to learn, right? Learn as in understand what they're doing, because like I know if my kids want something then they do the right thing right yeah. so but it's it's just interesting um that this was the first kind of practice that i didn't see as like kind of innate in children yeah you think this is a little bit um um a little bit counter to the kind of that quality of wanting in yeah. children but there you know when i think about it there are aspects of this which may be there in that children can very, very quickly let go of a disappointment. They don't hang on to it, right? So they can let go very quickly of something that didn't go their way, and they're open for something um, going their way right away. So there's some aspects, there's a kind of lightness of how they um, get attached, right? Yeah. Generally, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I see, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that. yeah, but but thank you, It's, it's interesting. It's interesting to look at that. You're really suggesting there may be aspects of this which are on a different order of learning. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting, yeah. Up front, here. Chris? Yeah, I'm talking about the aspect of learning and you also talked about... Um, our limited knowing of the depth of our own psyche. Yeah. And for me, that kind of comes back to, it's more the why of things than the what or the how of things. Yeah. Um, like the, maybe an athlete is in it for the joy of the game, the yeah. sport, um, to where they can, if they come out of the, <laughs> with a lower score than the other team at the end, it's, that's not what it was about. It was, yeah. They got to participate in the, in the competition. And, and I think that for me, it's, that's where uh, the meditation practice really helps is it's that, that depth of compassion you have for yourself yeah. and to develop that why to where um, you can be passionate about your compassion with about being attached mm-hmm. to uh, if I do this, what will I gain? Or yeah. um, what's the yeah. what's the outcome that I'm really shooting for? So, but, That's right. Yeah, the, yeah. I think what you're doing is you're partly helping us see that there's something bigger here. You know, we can co- call it by different names: compassion, understanding. Um, it would be there for athletes that the for athletes there has to be something bigger than simply winning or losing right i mean um, you know i'm i 'm aware and i 've sometimes talked about the um, the four guiding principles for the golden state warriors. Do you know what they are nope <laughs> the suggestion made was shoot 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 no it 's uh or fast, 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 fast. No, it's uh, the four principles that they work with are mindfulness, compassion, this is true, joy, and then the fourth is competition. I think they kind of had to throw that in there to <laughs> not be, look too weird. Um, but, but 
uh, those, those, that's how they work, right? That's, that's actually their four guiding principles. And there's, I think it, the point I'm making is I think there's something bigger, right? There's something bigger, and it could be the joy, it could be just the sense of touching something deeper that, you know, that I think dr- drives us in whatever we're doing. If you think of being an artist or a musician, if you can touch like the depths of creativity, that matters more than whether you're an external success. Right? That, that's an example of it. And so I think all of this is pointing to ways that we can touch something deeper and have that, that deeper aspect be like the guiding light. That's a way of talking about it, right? Um, yeah. uh, in whatever activity we're in, you know, raising children, sports, meditation, being creative, and so forth. Right? Other reflections, comments? Please. Um, I have a mentee, um, a little girl who's 10 years old who um, has a real hard time when something doesn't go her way. Yeah. Um, she just cannot let it go. Yeah. And I'm wondering what can be done to work with her to help her make that transition from... She'll go for hours and and hold on to it and be angry. Yeah. And it, it's very difficult to work with her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm not an expert in child development, um, but my, my, my intuition hearing that is that it's actually no different than what we work with as adults. And that, you know, at a certain age, children start developing these patterns and habits that we know as adults, where we know that with some things, if something doesn't go our way, we can be knocked around for hours or for days or for years, depending on the nature of what occurs. Mm-hmm. And we can, you know, we were just uh, having this retreat on transforming the judgmental mind. One of the concepts we work with a lot is how we develop um, limiting beliefs about ourselves, particularly, that can really um, organize our behavior and our minds. And so, for example, if I'm a child, and at age five, uh, I develop a kind of limiting belief that um, I can't be happy unless I get what I want, or something like that, or I'm not okay unless I get what I want, or um, and that if I develop that at that young age, it's going to be automatic at a later age. It might not have been there at five. I might have been more able to let go at age five, but I might develop some kind of habit or pattern where there's some internal schema which tells me I have to have that or I'm not okay or I'm, you know, I should be unhappy or whatever it is. There's some internal kind of programming almost, we might say, and that um, you know, we can all, we have, a, each of us as adults have a lot of those, quite a few mm-hmm. <clears throat> of those programs. And part of what we do in meditation, and, you know, we, <clears throat> we look particularly at this in the <clears throat> retreat and teaching on the judgmental mind, is we learn to see those more clearly and deconstruct them. <clears throat> so it may be, I'm, I'm not sure, it may be that there's some kind of pattern there that could be worked with at the age of 10 and would save uh, a lot of therapy bills at age 40. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. Does that make some sense? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Jade, it's interesting. I've realized over the last couple of years that I am really a process-oriented person. Yeah. And I've been working in uh, with, with a group of people who are primarily goal-oriented and, and how frustrating that can be. Um, but yeah. it, it just, um, I really like what you said um, about, you know, the process and yeah. um, thinking about, you know, that it's about the journey, right? It kind of is right. the, along that same line and how it ties to what you've offered here today. So, I thank you for that. I just want to ponder that a little you, bit. Yeah, more you're welcome. I, yeah, no, it's a, that's an important um, what uh, division. I mean, ultimately, I think this principle 
is talking about how one can integrate attention to the process with skillful goal orientation, right? I think it's, it's, again, it's not giving up having goal orientation, it's just trying to watch out for the downside of that. And so, in the best of situations, you and your co-workers, it was a co-workers, would share and come to a higher integration, you know, and maybe you need a organizational consultant, or maybe you're the only one with the process, and they're just saying, get with the, get with the program, right? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, but uh, ideally, they have a lot to learn from you. Right? You certainly probably think that. <laughs> and they may not. So, uh, but maybe do little experiments. You know? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I, I've been on... Um, I remember being... I was on the board of the Buddhist Peace Fellowship for you know, eight out of ten years for a period of time. And we used to have our meetings done in an unorthodox way, which gave a lot of attention to process. We would have two-hour meetings... And we would do individual check-ins, sometimes for as much as the first hour, basically to get a sense of you know, what's going on internally for each of the people there, and what's it like, and what's, you know, what's, you know, so we could have more empathy and so forth. And, you know, and we found that when that was there, and we also had you know, process guidelines and so forth, but we could be extremely efficient on, that basis, on the basis of empathy and uh, group guidelines for how to be skillful in a way that paid good attention to the process. We were, inc- I thought, we were incredibly efficient. And my, you know, I was first a little skeptical. I thought, you know, you know, and half of the meeting, you know, on check-ins, <laughs> you know, but it actually worked. And I was, you know, I became a, you know, advocate of of balancing process with with uh, attention to uh, outcomes. Right, so it, it actually is a huge issue in so many organizations, probably also probably in personal relationships. Imagine if you have a couple and one member of the couple is dedicated to process, the other is dedicated to outcome. Potentially great learning, great mature relationship, and potentially conflict. <laughs> right? So uh, it's, it's a really good uh, what, uh, lens into quite a lot of issues. And so that, that balance of process and outcome is, is a big one in so many uh, areas. Yeah, thank you. <clears throat> okay, we're, we're, at, we're at our typical closing time. And so um, one suggestion would be if you feel drawn to explore this principle. One way to work with it would be to take as an intention in the next week to work with it. And you could work with it very concretely in a few different ways. One way would just be to really bring the principle to mind at the beginning of your day, or maybe at the beginning of a meeting, or the beginning of your meditation. Another way would be to look particularly um, probably an easier access point to see where one gets attached to outcome, right? So say, in, let me today, I'm going to really try to track where I get caught in outcome. Some of us may be looking at the other side where I'm not quite acting as I might want. Another way to work with this would be to take one or more of those four sets identified by the teaching of the eight worldly winds. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, fame and disrepute, praise and blame. Just take praise and blame and look for it. For, look at how that turns up for you for the next week. Look at those, or take off all four of the sets. That is a very skillful way to practice. Like, put those on your radar, just so you track when you uh, maybe get attached to the pleasant, want to push away the unpleasant, same with praise and blame and so forth. So, those would be ways of practicing it if you wanted to take this for the next week. If you do it for a week, it'll get internalized to some extent, so it'll be much more your own. And, and I think it could really, it, it's, it's a powerful one, really a beautiful practice. So um, let's just sit for a moment and set your intention, if you have one, for what comes out of our morning session.
And then we remember that the horizon of our practice is to wish that our positive qualities that we've developed, our understanding, our insight, be shared widely with others. We have a dedication of merit practice often at the end of our sessions where we say, may the fruits of our time together be there for us, maybe they be there for those in our lives, and may they ultimately be there for all beings without exception. That's the larger horizon of our practice to remember to benefit all. So thank you for your kind attention. May may the practice with this principle go very, very well without being attached to how well it's going. (laughs) (laughs) And let me know any of your stories. I'd love to hear them, how you keep learning in this way. So thank you again, and to be continued. Okay. I will, I'm going to uh, Israel in three days for two and a half weeks of teaching and two and a half weeks of traveling. So I think I come back right after I return. So I should be fresh. Maybe I'll have a, a slideshow. I return July 13th. Yeah. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed to continue these offerings, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.